It is well with my soul. To Kelly and Mary, it is well. Darlene, it is well. To Sonny, it is well. God walks with us through all those trials, through all those moments of pain and darkness, when it seems as if the sun will never shine again. He is there. He is there even when Elimelech and Naomi journey, sojourn in the land of Moab. He is there. Even when they couldn't understand what was going on. Even when all the, the fear of the time, the hunger that abound, the pain that was there, they did not understand. Because trials happen to all of us, do they not? Each and every one of us that sit together find ourselves in those moments of conflict, in those moments of questioning, in those moments of doubt. And like Elimelech and Naomi, we have to make a choice. And sometimes those choices are very, very difficult. I probably shared with you I love Andy Griffin I love Gomer Pyle, and I love Gomer when he becomes a Marine. And one of the amazing things about Gomer when he goes and becomes a Marine, they have to take tests. And Gomer doesn't know how to take a test, you know. He doesn't know how to pass a test, in other words. And you remember that episode when it was true and false? And he took his two fingers, and he slapped them on the desk. And whichever one hurt the most was the answer, and he passed it. I'm not sure if that says something about the military testing or whether it says something about Gomer. But I do remember that it is part of our life, the trials and temptations. And in the first week we talked about those trials. We talked about that when those trials come, we have an option. And we have three options. And the first of those options is to just endure the pain. Just go along with it. Elimelech and uh, Naomi could have just said, well, we'll just sit here in Bethlehem, Judea, and we'll just endure the famine. Or they could have elected to escape, to leave, to run. And most of us sort of like that option, you know, just get away from it, just get away from the pain, go somewhere else, and it'll get better if I can move, if I can buy a new house, if I can get a new job, if I can get away from the situation, it will get better. Or we can opt out for the third. And that is part of being able to embrace the challenge that is before us. Because, see, Elimelech and his two sons could have taken carts and drove them down to Moab and bought the grain and brought it back to Bethlehem and put a markup on it. And guess what? They would have embraced the famine and may have got ahead. But that's... Part of our life, isn't it? The trials that come in and enter into our lives. But as I look at that, I realize that God is at hand and that God is moving. His fingerprint is all over the book of Ruth. His fingerprint prayerfully is upon your life. I pray that this week as you sit here and as you multitask, 
And as you review over the past week, you can see the, foot, the fingerprints of God upon your life. You can see where he has moved. You can see where he has touched. You can see his effect upon all the things that have happened to you. And many times we have to step back and take a bigger perspective. Because as we get farther along, many times we, we don't see the hand of God. We don't understand if he's working. We don't understand if he's working in our decision at which university to go to. We don't understand if God is working at which job we ought to take. We don't understand if God is working when we are trying to determine who we will marry. The truth about it is, is that if you're a Christian, God is working. And his fingerprint is even here in the book of Ruth. As you look at that, you see that even in the marriage of Ruth to Naomi's son, Ruth being a Moabite, marrying a Jew, impossible, okay? Just totally impossible. It is totally unacceptable by both communities, by the Moab community and also by the Jewish community. They would be rejected on both sides. They would be in no man's land. But they elected to marry, elected to join together. We see the hand of God moving even in Naomi's resolve to return to Bethlehem in verse 6. The news of God's blessing upon the land. She determines to return much like the prodigal son in the book of Matthew. She's tired of being in that land of unbelievers. She's tired of being in that land that is bringing bitterness in her life. She's tired of being in that land away from her family, away from that which is familiar to herself. She determines to return. And when she determines to return, her daughter-in-laws elect one to stay and one to go. And we love Ruth, the first chapter, verse 6 through 18, do we not? We read it at virtually every wedding. We quote it all the time. But this is Ruth's commitment to Naomi. It is her commitment to a faith. It is her commitment to living a lifestyle that is different than hers completely. She is willing to leave her family. She is willing to leave her friends. She's willing to leave her comfort zone. She's willing to accept God, Jehovah, she is willing to accept whatever the future holds. If she die in Bethlehem, she is willing to die in Bethlehem. The handprint of God is on that decision. The handprint of God is on the decision that Ruth makes to work in the field there in the second chapter, verse 2. Last week, Chris did a great job in explaining and showing us the providence of God. And showing us that in this particular passage where it says, as it turns out, it's just not a coincidence. It's just not something that happens. God has brought this about in the fullness of time. It's not by chance. It's not by chance that Ruth caught the eye of Boaz there in verse 5 of chapter 2. God's hand is at work. James said it this morning, did he not? We believe that you are here because God has directed you here. And you may say, nah, my mom and dad told me I had to come. 
may be true, but I believe God had a hand in it. Okay? Well, that may not be true. My wife told me that, you know, if I didn't come to church, she wasn't going to go out with me this week. You know? Or my wife gave me a long list that if I stayed home, I had to do it, and I figured it'd be easier to go to church than it would be to do that list. Whatever the reason is, whatever your motivation is, however you may rationalize it and try to understand it, we believe as Christians that God has you here in this place at this time for his word. Just as he touched the life of Ruth. But as I look at that, I realize that not only is the hand of God moving, but notice Naomi. Naomi's faith is working. You see, Naomi comes to Bethlehem filled with bitterness. She comes to Bethlehem as a victim. And you know and I know that most victims have no plan. And as long as Naomi was oppressed, and as long as Naomi was depressed, and as long as she was in this cloud, in this place of hurt, she could not see the hand of God. And notice what her answer was to her friends when she came to Bethlehem. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She had no strategy for the future. She had no plans. All she was wanting to do was make it through this day. One of the most terrible effects of depression is our inability to move forward, to have some kind of hope in the future. I don't know if you've dealt and sat down and talked with people that were going through that, that struggle and that challenge. But you can tell them, oh, but you don't see this. They go, yeah, but they can give you 10 reasons why it won't work. And you can say, but you can try this. And they go, oh, but you don't understand. It won't work. And they have an answer, a negative response to virtually everything that you would project out there. And so as I look at Naomi, I realize that something has had to happen to Naomi as we get into into chapter 3. But I believe it happens in chapter 2, verse 20. Notice what happens here. She comes to Bethlehem, she comes bitter, she comes hurt, she comes oppressed, depressed. And in chapter 2, verse 20, she says, the Lord bless him. And she's talking about Boaz. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, he, God, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi sees what? The kindness and the power and the handprint of God working through Boaz. And her life is changed. That depression is gone. That lack of hope and that hopelessness is gone. That inability to see the future, that inability to have a plan, a strategic plan, has been changed. She now has a hope. She now has a faith that is working. She now can see beyond this day. The kindness of God is working. Have you seen the hand of God move? Oh, it is is awesome when you understand that he can move governments, when you understand that God can move school systems, when you understand that God can move my parents, when you understand that he can move my children, when you understand there's nothing that God can't do. You realize that she's concerned now that she has hope 
And now that she sees the hand of God moving, she's now concerned that Ruth find a place of care and security. And what does she do in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2? Naomi devises a plan. A plan. She says, one day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a house, a home for you, where you will be well and provided for? Notice that Naomi has a strategic plan. She she decides to take things into her own hands. God has led up to this point. God has renewed her strength. God has brought her back to Bethlehem. God has given her a daughter-in-law. But Naomi decides it's time to do something. She decides that there is a plan that is delicate and dangerous. Because if it is found out, they both could be outcasts. If it's found out, they both could be driven from the city. Naomi knows the marriage concerns. She knows that marriage is a very strategic alliance in this part of the world. That men and women brought together nations and brought together families. And they built kingdoms out of their marriages. She also knew that no one would look at Ruth as a wife because she was a Moabite. And because she was uh, barren and because she was poor. Poorest of the poor. Naomi knew the ancient family law. That there was only one way to keep the family together. There was only one way to keep that name going forth. And that was that when your husband passed away, his brother would come and marry you and you would have children and the name would be able to go forward. If there was no brothers, then the nearest kinsman redeemer, kinsman would have to come and redeem the family. So so Noemi, my tongue has got tied here, makes it clear she wants to win for Ruth a godly husband and secure a future. But notice that Naomi is the one who comes up with the plan and the strategy, but who implements it? Who is the one that has to take the initiation on here? It's Ruth, okay? Ruth becomes the risk taker. Notice as you look at Ruth's life, she's always been the risk taker. If you go back to the first chapter when Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, who is the one that clings to Naomi? It is Ruth. Ruth is saying, I will not leave you. Do not make me stay. I will go wherever you stay. It is Ruth who approaches Naomi in chapter 2, verse 2, to glean the fields for food. It is Ruth who takes that initiative. It is Ruth there in chapter 2, verse 18, who brings her leftover lunch to Naomi. When she could have aided herself, when she could have uh, neglected her, she still took the initiative. Ruth was willing to follow through all the bold acts of offering herself in marriage to such an older man as Boaz. Notice that Ruth not only took the initiative, but she acted alone in chapter 3, verse 3. She was told by Naomi in her plan to take a bath, to put on perfume, to put on nice clothes. She was to end this period of mourning for her husband. She was supposed to remove all the symbols of grief. 
and to dress as if she was ready to return to the living, to return to a normal life, which would even include marriage. Naomi had her go to the threshing floor, the place of work, to stay out of sight to the right time after Boaz had had his supper and as he had decided to lay down and rest. And as he lay down and rest, when it was quiet and there was no one around, Ruth was to go and lay there at his feet and to uncover his feet. And most of us go, why did she uncover his feet? Well, if he was like many of us, I hate cold feet. And she uncovers his feet and it cools him down. And what happens? He wakes up. And when he wakes up and she's at his feet, he looks at her and she goes, what are you doing here? Who are you? And it's that time that Ruth presents her proposal. She proposes to him. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. And when you look at that passage of Scripture, you go, well, what in the world does that mean? When you look at the Hebrew understanding of corner, it talks about a wing. Spread your wing over me. And so that corner could be translated wing, and it could say unto Boaz, place me under your wing. Take care of me. Shelter me. Provide security unto me. Marry me. It was clear to Boaz what she was doing. It was clear to Boaz what she was saying. He understood his full legal responsibilities. But notice if you go back to Ruth, the second chapter, verse 12, notice that Boaz uses these same words. And he answers his own prayer in which he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so God has provided his wing of refuge for Ruth. But now Ruth is proposing to Boaz that he cover her up and bring her under his wing and provide that security, provide that lineage that the name of her husband could go forward. And she lied there that night, patiently waiting for what was going to happen. As you read that passage of Scripture, he goes, I'll be more than glad to do it, but guess what? There's someone else in line. And so we end the chapter 3 with the answer to the marriage proposal being unclear. Because Boaz can't say, I can do it. Because there's someone else that he has to address. Ruth becomes that risk taker. And you know, as I look at that, I realize something. I realize that God calls us to be that risk taker. He calls us to take faith into our hands. It is a message for you and me. It is a message that risk takers need to exercise this idea called faithing. Jeffrey Smelt uses this word to talk about faith being manifested in action. And Chris and I were talking about this week. He did such a great job in setting up the provision of God, the hand of God, the direction of God. But it took Naomi and Ruth to put it to action, did it not? What had happened if Naomi and Ruth had just sat there and said, well, that's great. God's really been good. It's been fantastic what God did. 
But God compels them to take action, to take that faith that has been developed, to take the leadership of God, to take the hand of God, and to put it to work, to become risk takers. The ability to live out our faith, to put it in action, by that we have the title of the sermon, Faith to Act. Because there's great question about faith that does not compel us to act. What happens what happened this morning in the baptistry? Not a saving grace, was it? It was faith in action. It is the verb, faithing. It is the ability to live out our faith. You have to do something. You have to demonstrate it. You cannot sit on it. It cannot live within you. It cannot stay dormant. It is something that compels you, that forces you, that drives you, that motivates you, that keeps you going every single day. It keeps you in the house of God. It keeps you in the word of God. It keeps you before the throne of God. It is the power to move you and to move me. It is faith in action that pulls us away from the human ideas and abilities, that pushes us to trust God, to push beyond numbers. I am not a bean counter by trade, okay? I've learned how to be a bean counter, but I'm not one by trade. And there are times that the numbers just don't add up. There are t- I can tell you right now, in this room here, you have been compelled and been led by the Holy Spirit to, of God to give to his work. And you, in your trusty bean-counting way, took out your notebook, and you went through this. And you went, <laughs> it don't add up. Okay, it don't add up. There is no way, God, I can give. Because the numbers just don't add up. You see, the difference between being a risk-taker And just being someone that's going along is that the risk taker understands it doesn't add up. Because when I put God into the formula, he changes the results. When I put God into the formula, he gives us the answer. And many times I'm waiting for the answer before I'm willing to act. And God says what? Step out. Because you see that risk taker, that risk taker is one that takes that initiative. That steps out into the deep. But there's another aspect about faithing that I really think is important. Faithing is the equivalent of inhaling and exhaling. Inhaling and exhaling. We've got too many people that are doing nothing but inhaling. They're taking it in. They're going to leave and say, man, wasn't it great to be in church today? Didn't the choir do a good job? Didn't everything just go right down the line? Wasn't it fantastic? They're intaking. They're sucking it all in. But they're not exhaling. They're not sharing it. They're not talking about the hand of God and sharing the message of God. They're taking it all in. But understand faithing. Is taking it in and letting it out. Coming in to receive, coming in to share, but going out to spread the good news, to share the message, and to take the initiative, much like Peter did. I love the story there in the book of Matthew, the 14th chapter, when Peter sees the Lord walking on the water. 
He sees the Lord walking on the water, and he goes, first of all, Lord, is that you? Because he wants to make sure that it's not some ghost. He wants to make sure it's not one of these Loch Ness monsters there in the Sea of Galilee. He wants to make sure that that which is coming across the water is the Lord. And when the Lord says yes, he says, can I come out and join you? And you know Peter hadn't been thinking very long about that. Okay. It must have just been one of those right through his head, and it said it, right? Well, now that he said it, and the Lord said, come on out. And he took out, and he took that step out onto the water. And it was okay. But all of a sudden, the wind began to blow, the waves began to beat up on him, and he realized something. He was walking on water. He couldn't walk on water. Nobody can walk on water. And what happened? He sank to the bottom. And he cried out, Lord, save me. <laughs> the army likes to do pool training, swimming pool training. And they put you in all your combat gear, and they give you a weapon, and they take you up on the high dive, and they tell you to jump off. And you jump off with it all on, and you're supposed to float to the surface and make your way to the edge of the pool. First sergeant came to me and said, Psych, you got to do this. And I went, Nope, not going to do that. He goes, You got to do this. And I said, Well, I'll do it, but I'll do it without the weapon. Because I knew that weapon was going to throw me all the way to the bottom. And he goes, No, <laughs> chaplain, you got to do it with a weapon. I said, You don't know. I'm going right straight to the bottom. He says, If you go to the bottom, I'll come in and get you. I says, You promise? He says, Yeah, I'll come in and get you. I don't want to, but I'll come and get you. Got up on the high dive, all geared out, took the step into the water I went. Right to the bottom, because that's with all your boots and all the stuff on, you know. And I waited for him. Before long, I could see him coming through the water. He came in there and pulled me up to the top and set me on the side. I went, thank you, top. I told you it was going to happen. But Peter found himself in that same situation, sinking. And God reached out and touched him. Risk takers take that initiative. They may lose. They may get harmed. They may get rejected. But they're willing to step out there and do whatever God has instructed them to do because they're trusting him. Risk takers may have to stand by themselves. They may have to stand before the pilot, uh, before Pilate. They may have to stand before Felix. They may have to stand before a congregation that is angry and upset and wanting to crucify them. But they stand there alone, but not alone. They may stand there by themselves, but remember what Hebrews says. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You won't have to be there by yourself. You may have to travel that pathless populate it but I'll be there you know one of the things most of us will not agree about is Tebow I tell you I've never seen in all my years such a debate on sports stations in my life okay national championship Heisman trophy he can't play his way out of a wet paper bag you're going something's going on here one of the things that I appreciate about him, he's willing to be himself. 
and he's willing to live out his faith. Even when the newscasters in New York criticize him, and in L.A. and in Denver, even when his coaches come on him and say, oh, this guy's terrible, this guy's terrible, he's willing to stand for his faith. He's willing to stand and be the testimony that he desires and he knows God wants him to be. Regardless of all that is around, he's willing to lose his future, his future football life to be what God wants him to be. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know many guys that are willing to do that. How many people are willing to walk away from 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, 30 million? Away from the fame, away from the cameras, away from all that is there, from all the groupies, willing to give it all up so he can be faithful to God. Risk takers stand by themselves but are never alone. Risk takers are passionate. They have that fire in their being. We talk about sports and we talk about how do you tell the difference between this player and that player. And one of the qualities that coaches and many of the scouts are looking for is that burningness, that desire in their being. That's motivating, that's pushing them, that's driving them. Risk takers are passionate. They're passionate because they're filled with the power of God. They're filled with the power and the fire of the Holy Spirit. They have been baptized by the fire. They have been touched by the Holy Spirit of God. And they've learned not to quench the Spirit. Because you can quench it. 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter, verse 19 says, Do not put the Spirit, do not put out the Spirit. The Spirit's fire. Passionless, passionless. People cannot produce passion. They just remain huddled up in a comfortable, familiar surroundings. Those that are passionate for life, those that are passionate for serving God, are willing to take the risk, are willing to put themselves out there, are willing to be rejected, are willing to have their backs turned on them. They're willing to give it all for the truth of Christ. And that brings us to this time, this moment that God's brought you to. Because here's four questions. What might God do if I or you became a risk taker? What would God do? What could God do with Meadowbrook Baptist Church if we would be willing to take a risk. Yeah, we know what the budget says, but we're willing to take the risk. Yeah, we know how many we have in Sunday school, but we're willing to take the risk. Yes, we know we're landlocked, but we're willing to take the risk. Yes, we know we have a lot that that needs to be done, but we're willing to step out there. What could God do with Meadowbrook if we're willing to become risk takers. Second question. What might God do if we would really want and become part and seriously practice faithing, putting our faith in action? And what does that mean? That means that we would press out, that we would press forward. 
It would mean that we would not just say the words, but that we would act out those words. That we wouldn't just talk about and sing about the name of Jesus, that we would actually employ the name of Jesus. That we would actually be out there and pray for the impossible. So that we know that when the answer comes, it only could come one way. It has to be God. There are those of us that may be exploring all kinds of opportunities and we don't know what God has in store for us. But are we willing to trust God? I had someone call me this week and he goes, he goes, Dyke, I am so mad. What you mad about? He goes, I've been pursuing this line. I've been pursuing it and pursuing it. It is God. I believe God has led my family to this point. But as I get down this path, I realize something. That the bureaucracy of who I'm dealing with and the people that I'm dealing with are all throwing stumbling blocks in the way. And it's forcing us to question what God wants us to do. And I'm just so perturbed because the path is not clear. I'm so perturbed that there aren't lights leading down the road that I can follow. I'm so perturbed that there's not a written document that says, go here, go to the next one, go to the next one. I want to know the way. And if I know the way, then I'll step. God says, no, don't work that way. Step. Trust me. Lean out. Press forward. Seek me. Put me to the test. Third, what might God do if I consistently lived out what I know is true about God? Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. How many believe the Bible? Amen. How many believe Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. How many believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do we? Do we really? There is such a cry for diversity in our world, is it not? There's such a cry that we all get along and sing kumbaya. There's such a cry that we don't offend our brother, our neighbor, our school system, our political system. That we bring everybody in under the tent. Do we truly believe that the only way to heaven is to accept Jesus Christ as the only begotten of the Father, that he says there is no way under heaven but through me. Boy, if we really, really believe that, what could God do with us if we live it out? If we live it out, does that mean that the Islamic nation may pick you up and put you in jail and kill you? You're right. They may do that. Does it mean that you'll be ostracized by a Jewish community? It may be. It may be. Does it mean that you're going to have friends with everybody? It means you won't. Do we really believe do we really believe that he is the only begotten of the Father, the only way to heaven? Do we really believe that he gives us the power 
do we really believe that he answers prayer? If we really believe God answers prayer, why aren't we praying? If we really believe God answers prayer, do you, can you articulate on that piece of paper that's in your bulletin, when was the last time God answered your prayer? Well, he answers my prayer every day. Come on, let's get down to specifics. Okay. I came here three years ago. I had three requests, right, Miss Jane? Three requests. Three miracles. I was praying for three miracles. Okay. Miracles that the only way these could happen is that God himself, in his power and his might and in his glory, could answer them. It's amazing how he answered them, okay? Nothing that I could have ever done in a million years could have made it happen. But God answers these prayers. And my challenge to you and to myself is put the fleece out there. Test our God. Try him. Prove him. He is willing, if we're willing, to become risk takers. Last, what might God do if I simply stepped out and regularly took risks to grow and to impact others for him. You know the scariest part of being a preacher? Scariest part? Funerals? Not scary. They're rejoicing for me. You know what the scariest part? Is going out and knocking on somebody's door. Okay. Why? Because I don't know how big a dog they got. Okay, and I don't like dogs unless they're big enough that I can grab them and throw them, okay? And most of you have dogs that I could never even come close to doing it. I, it is the fear of my life to have to go and knock on somebody's door I don't know and to think that what's beyond that door. But is it scary for me, for the person in the cubicle beside me to say, when they come knocking and say, you know, I had a terrible night last night. My kids were just totally disruptive. And my husband and I don't know what to do. When I can say, you know what I found? I found an answer. I know someone who can. What would God do with us if we would be willing to venture out in the scariest parts of our life and trust him to take care of the dog, to trust him to take care of the kids, to trust him to take care of who answers that door. What could God do with us? The challenge this morning is this. Are you a risk taker? Now, David can bring you out a test if you want to find out. He can tell real quick. He's got a test. He'll give you and he'll tell you whether you want to give him $100,000 to invest or whether you want to give him $5 to invest, okay? But I'm asking you not to trust investments, stocks and bonds, insurances. I'm asking you, are you willing to trust the creator of the universe? Are you willing to trust the God of your salvation? Are you willing to trust the God 
that can touch your children and save their souls. They can touch your marriage and revive it and renew it and refresh it and put it on the right path. Are you willing to trust God for the pain and the care in your life? Are you willing to trust God for your kids? Oh, no, I want to put my kids in a closet and lock the door. Keep away the iPhone and keep away the iTouch and keep away the iPad. I don't want them. I want to put them in bubble wrap. But God says you can't do that. You got to what? You got to trust me with your kids. This morning, are you willing to be a a risk taker? Are you willing to step out? We're going to stand and we're going to sing. But the question is still there. The question is for you. The question is, will you step out? Will you sit in the comfort? Will you sit there without the threat? Will you sit there in the surroundings that are familiar? Or will you step out and say, preacher... James, I am going to do whatever God calls me to do. If he calls me to be a missionary to Iran, I'm hitting it front and center. If God calls me to be a missionary to Birmingham, I'm going to hit it front and center. I'm going to do whatever God reveals to me from this point forward. Are you willing to do that this morning? As we stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, love us now. And as your spirit is moving amongst us, and as your spirit is calling us, and as your spirit is touching us and revealing to our mind and our heart, Lord, there's many that need to give their children back to you. Father, there's many that need to give their marriages back to you. Father, there's many that need to give their grandchildren back to you. Father, there's many of us that need to give our church back to you. Father, there's many of us that need to give our budget back to you. Father, there's many of us that need to give our job back to you. We need to step out and trust you. And Father, during the singing and during this time of invitation, may they find their way to the front. May they pray with someone. May they kneel at the front. May they seek your face. For you promised. God Almighty has promised to hear our prayer and to answer. May we make that decision this morning. Amen.